Presenting a bold new adventure into Lovecraftian horror and black comedy, The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program's acclaimed second series, The Terrible Secret of Lot X. This is startling and strange, but darling, we might be onto something here. This is why we came to Arkham after all. The Necronomicon. Whatever your intent with this book, you will find more danger than answers. In this program, our cast actually lives the terror. I... The air gives way to the crushing depths. You're drowning. You're drowning in a sea of yellow. <laughs> it's an improvised audio drama that uses Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu role-playing game and the wits of our players. These poor souls never know what's going to crawl out of the darkness. Just search for The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program or unlock all our secrets at CthulhuMystery.com. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from the Consequence Podcast Network. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn. You might know me from previous episodes, such as The Library Policeman, which we discussed last week. That is the third book uh, in the Four Past Midnight novella collection, which we are currently discussing. And today we are going to talk about the fourth and final book in Four Past Midnight, The Sundog, which you may not even be familiar with because they never made a movie out of it. (laughs) So uh, before we get going, let's uh, kick off who is on our panel today. Who is sitting across from me? Uh, This is Aisha Smile and Say Intercourse, (laughs) because I had to. I had to. (laughs) Love it. Good to have you back. You were on the Library Policeman episode, and before that, you were on the Dark Dark Half. half Yes, you were on the Dark Half. We're always happy to have you here. And who is calling us from across the great uh, American prairie land? This is Dan Pops. Or Pops? I was like, oh. (laughs) Funko Pops. Yeah, right. It's Pop Pop Merle, not Pop, Pops Pop. Merle. So Dan, Dan Pop Merle, uh, Merrill, Dan Pop Merle, can't even say my own name right. Uh, yeah, also <laughs> back from the uh, library policeman. I mean, I, I think we do get, were, were either of you on Secret Window or... I wasn't. No. no. So I, I think us us three, we get like the better half of Four Past Midnight, I would argue. I would um, argue as well. I I absolutely abhor uh, Secret Window, Secret Garden. Yeah. So it's probably, although it sounds like our panel also felt very similarly. I'm currently listening to our episode about the about the film starring the great Johnny Depp. Maybe I you've heard did of him. too. On my way here, I was catching up on the Johnny Depp one. But it's a fun, it's a fun episode. Uh, so if you haven't listened to that, please go back, give a listen, give a listen to our Langoliers episode, our episode on the mini series of the Langoliers, which is also bad uh although our episode is very good on it and uh do you think that uh langlers is worse than i i think langlers is worse than secret window i don't think either of them are great but i I actually like secret window a little bit more 100 100 yeah 
for but me, so yeah. So, yeah. I, so it's like it's it's a great Langoliers is the suckiest. <laughs> well, I the thing is, I might like the Langoliers story more than Secret Window, Secret Garden because I I really hate that book. But I think I like the Secret Window movie more than the Langoliers miniseries, hmm. if only because oh, it's ninety yes. minutes and not three hours. Uh, I just hate the Langoliers miniseries, and I hate Secret Window, Secret Garden. So I'm always in the minority with Secret Window because I went in with such low expectations when I went and saw that movie because I hate the story that I remember walking out thinking, you know, it wasn't bad, uh, but it is bad. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> Don't fool wrong. yourself. Yeah. So, but so it's kind of fun to, uh, with last week, we talked about the library policeman, no film adaptation. One of the stranger, more, uh, I don't know, kind of off the beaten path King stories. Mm. And it's it, like I said, I talked about this last week, but it's kind of fun to go on Reddit and watch people kind of react, uh, new King fans sort of react to library policeman because it really is sort of this uh, impactful story that, you know, is only really whispered about within the King world. World. And uh, I find that really fascinating. And the Sundog is similar, I guess, but it's not it doesn't have a, it's maybe not as controversial as one might say. But uh, because um, Library Policeman featured some pretty wild stuff. And here we've got I don't know, it's it's a, it's kind of a it's an off the beaten path, a supernatural story. And it is a Castle Rock adjacent. Well, it's not adjacent, but it is a Castle Rock story. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's interesting to me. I guess I'll kick it off. Uh, this discussion by talking a little bit about the origins of the Sundog. And I find it interesting the way that King writes about it in his intro. Mm. Um, let me see if I can get the uh, exact pages here. Yeah, 584 in, I got the Signet edition. Um, oh, I guess I should, before we get going, like, because we talked about Library Policeman last week and right. when we first encountered it. Um, but Aisha, this was your first encounter, yes, with the Sundog? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, did you have any expectations going into it? Did you know it was a Castle Rock story going into it? Uh, well, after I read the epilogue, I think you guys mentioned it offhand at one point. Yeah. Um, but then when I read the ep- or the intro for the epilogue, whatever you want to call it, uh, for this particular one, then I realized, which is something actually I want to talk about, because he mentioned this is like him closing out yeah. being in the Castle Rock area. And so I was trying to get a timeline together in my head because I... Figured out the dark half happens before this. Yes. So then I'm kind of like, if it's needful things after this. It is. Yes. Is that the although closing he, out of Castle He didn't Rock? write them in that order. Right. Uh, although I, I don't think he clarifies in the intro in what order he wrote them in. But uh, yeah, this is supposed to be the bridge between uh, dark half and needful things. And okay. needful things was always considered the last Castle Rock book. Hmm. Spoiler alert. It wasn't. Um, I mean, he hasn't written anything huge about Castle Rock since then, but the story, the city has appeared in other uh, stories, including Gwen, Button Box, which was a book that he, uh, a, a novella he released, um, what was that, like two years ago? And he co-wrote that with Richard Chismar, and it was pretty good. So, um, yeah, so it's fun. But let me let me discuss a little bit, or let me just read a little bit here, just to give some context about Castle Rock and what this story represents within that. So I'm going to do a little bit of reading from the intro. I've got the Signet edition, and... Um, uh, and I guess, yeah, and like I said in the last episode, this book was my, uh, I'm reading from the version I read as a child. Sundog was a story that I remember I felt so disturbed after I, I read The Library Policeman that I was, uh, I think, a little bit put off from this book and I was excited to move on. So once I got to re- the Sundog, I kind of speed read it, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't think I fully processed it. So it was a good one to reread. How about you, Dan? Like, do you remember reading this for the first time? The, the, I think I mentioned this on the last episode. The only 
thing I really remember distinctly from this was that, you know how each of the novellas has a little black and white illustration before it? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's in all the editions. Yeah. I really remember the sun dogs just because it showed this really cool picture of a feral looking dog that I thought was really creepy. And I, I remember seeing that and thinking there are parts that were creepy, but I, I, until we reread it, um, beyond the basic plot skeleton of, oh, it's a, it's a, um, it's a picture that has a dog that keeps getting closer. I really didn't remember like, anything from this book at all. And I, maybe it was, maybe it was some, uh, um, maybe it was me forgetting that I repressed the memories of library policeman as a kid or something. Cause I didn't understand it. Um, no. but yeah, yeah, I really, I really don't remember this one much from, I know I read it when I was a kid, but yeah, most, it felt new to me though, this time around. Ah, oh, yes. Don't you see, don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it, exactly. And so in the intro, King talks about... Um, the various other sort of nooks and crannies of Castle Rock. And and I, I found this very funny. Uh, he says in 585 of the Signet Edition, he says, As the years passed, I became more and more interested in, almost entranced by the secret life of Castle Rock, by the hidden relationships which seemed to come clearer and clearer to me. Much of this history uh, seemed to come clearer. Oh, I'm sorry. Much of this history remains either unwritten or unpublished. And I love the first example here of like, like, cause a, he's like, oh, this was an unpublished story, but it's also the kind of thing where I'm like, why would anyone want to know this? Uh, he says, um, how the late sheriff George Bannerman lost his virginity in the back seat of his dead father's car. <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, like, why, why do I, I need yeah. that? I don't need that, especially with the way he's written Bannerman. And then he also says how Ophelia Todd's husband was killed by a walking windmill. That is actually something I'd like to see. Ophelia Todd, obviously the character from Mrs. Todd's uh, shortcut from Skeleton Crew, one of the better stories from that collection yeah, like that. Like and uh and then he says how deputy andy clutterbuck lost the index finger on mm-hmm. his left hand it was cut off in a fan and the family dog ate it that's kind of funny um yeah good old clutterbuck he he's a big he's a big part of uh, needful things and i feel like he even pops up in like lisey's story which is uh also castle rock adjacent and some other things so um So I'm going to keep reading here. Following the Dead Zone, which is partly the story of the psychotic Frank Dodd, I wrote a novella called The Body. Cujo, the novel in which good old Sheriff Bannerman bit the dust, and a number of short stories and novelettes about the town. The best of them, at least in my mind, are Mrs. Todd's Shortcut and Uncle Otto's Truck, both ones about uh, automobiles, which Stephen King loves. All of which is very well, but a state of entrancement with a fictional setting may not be the best thing in the world for a writer. It was for Faulkner and J.R.R. Tolkien, but sometimes a couple of exceptions just prove the rule and besides i don't play in that league so at some point i decided first in my subconscious mind i think where all that really serious work takes place that the time had come to close the book on castle rock maine where so many of my own favorite characters have lived and died enough after all is enough time to move on maybe all the way next door to harlow ha ha but i didn't just want to walk away i wanted to finish things and to do it with a bang little by little i began to grasp how that could be done and over the last four years or so i I've been engaged in writing a Castle Rock trilogy, if you please, the last Castle Rock stories. They were not written in order. I sometimes think out of order is the story of my life, but now they are written and they are serious enough. But I hope that doesn't mean that they are sober-sided or boring. The first of these stories, The Dark Half, was published in 1989. While it is primarily the story of 
of Tad Beaumont and in uh, and is in large part set in a town called Ludlow, uh, the town where the Creeds lived in Pet Cemetery. The town of Castle Rock figures in the tale, and the book serves to introduce Sheriff Bannerman's replacement, a fellow named Alan Pangborn. Sheriff Pangborn is at the center of the last story in this sequence, a long novel called Needful Things, which is scheduled to be published next year and will conclude my doings with what local people call The Rock. The connective tissue between these longer works is the story which follows. You will meet few, if any, of Castle Rock's large figures in the sundog, but it will serve to introduce you to Pop Merrill, whose nephew is Town Bad Boy and Gordy Lachance's Bet Noir in the body, Ace Merrill. The sundog also sets the stage for the final fireworks display, and I hope exists as a satisfying story on its own, one that can be read with pleasure even if you don't give a hang about the dark half or needful things. So I guess I'm curious here. Um, Aisha, you have not read Needful Things? Not yet. Interesting. It's one of my all-time favorite King books. So okay. I hope you do. Uh, Dan, you have read Needful Things. Love Needful Things. Same. Uh, yeah, that was the one, one of the ones when I went on that King binge, I don't know, about 10 years ago uh, to finish all the ones I hadn't read. Um, I remember I rode, I was like, I had like 100 pages left and I got on um, the train at Western, the Brown Line in Chicago. And I remember I just rode it all the way around the loop and back and that gave me enough time to finish it. So I have like this really nostalgic memory of finishing Needful Things, oh, which nice. I think is a, a really good book. Actually. Is it a shorter story than Needful Things? Things? Yeah. It is. No, uh, it's, no it's one of his longer novels. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's probably. <laughs> yeah. Just the last like hundred pages or so I, oh. I was able to read that stretch. Yeah. Not. Uh, no. Man, if I, if I could read the whole book in that time period, that would be yeah, because that's probably a 750 word or, or a pager there. And so, uh, yeah, so I feel like the, it's interesting that he describes this as the connective tissue. Mm-hmm. I have some thoughts on this and we'll touch on some of it in uh, King's Dominion. But Dan, do you think that this story sort of works as a bridge? I don't know, man. I almost feel like I almost feel like the dark half and all the stuff that came before this feels like more of a bridge to needful things. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. I, I mean, we meet Ace Merrill becomes a pretty big part of needful things. Pop Merrill, not so much. I think he gets like mentioned, but yeah. I don't. I don't think you get quite a good idea of Castle Rock as a town from this story, which I guess we've already gotten it from other like Cujo and Dark Half and things. But um, I, I mean, I don't know. Unless I'm missing something, I didn't really. I I guess the idea of having a junk shop or an antique shop that has these objects that are somewhat mystical, and I won't spoil too much of what happens in Beautiful Things. I guess there's that connection. It's kind of thematic, like the be careful what you wish for thing. But I yeah. don't know if that's, that's have, what uh, King's referring to. I a thought. Yeah, what's Even that? though I haven't read Needful Things. Yeah, bring it. Because I, I mean, I read the intro where he says this is what it's supposed to happen. And I was thinking about reading the dark half. And every time, I just didn't feel there was a connection to the dark half. Like they'd mentioned things offhand. But I felt that... Um, there is a point where he talks about how this people were asking him when he would write about something serious and yeah. he kind of plays with this idea of like what's real and what's happens in real life and this um, idea of society and how a small town is like a scale model of like how we view and how we look at society on like a, a under a magnifying glass. Yeah. And I remember thinking and I won't get uh, I'll get into this more I guess with the heroes and villains part is like Pop Merrill's description as like the crackle barrel philosopher. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. like there were just certain things that like if you Pop Merrill was that like I I could see you in a small town somewhere doing these things and I guess that's 
how he was trying to, I guess if you're thinking that if, was he trying to talk about Castle Rock and describe it to you or give you more flesh to the body of Castle Rock? Yeah. That's kind of how I viewed it. Sure. But that's stretching. Like, okay, I have an idea that this is a very small town where like pop controls everything. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, that's the kind, that's the most I got for like, Connective, Yeah. And I think that's valid, too. I mean, it, the way you describe it there, it reminds me of, have you seen Deadwood on HBO? We started it. But yeah. It. Deadwood's pretty great. I'm a big fan. But like the way that sort of uh, Ian McShane's character, Al Swearingen, sort of is the saloon owner who mm-hmm. kind of like is the, the quiet behind the scenes person who kind of runs the town. That's sort of how Pop Merrill is framed here. But I agree with you a lot, Dan, as well in that. Um, I feel like this is sort of a standalone story that exists in Castle Rock. And I find it interesting that King would call this the connective tissue. But then he even says right after that, you'll meet few to no uh, mm. characters who are actually <laughs> yeah, major exactly. characters in, in Castle Rock, which is weird and kind of strange to me. Uh, at the same time, there is mention of Alan Pangborn. There's mention of Polly Chalmers and there's mention of uh, Ace Merrill, who are all major players in Needful Things. But at the same time, they just kind of are there. And then King even at one point says about Polly. He's like, oh, we'll save her story for another day. And it's like, come on, dude. Do you feel like he just is writing as if this is like the actual dialogue he's having in his head and he just is coming word for word from his brain? Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, he didn't censor <laughs> anything. That's what it seems like because he says back and forth and that's kind of how I sound. I'm like having conversation before they come out for other people. Yeah, to hear. yeah. Well, I feel I feel like uh, in all of his intros, he, he always gets into that sort of folksy language like in, in uh library policeman i don't think we talked about in the episode but um in the intro he says something like oh i've, tr- I've tried to uh i've tried to pay- uh, draw a sketch of what the library policeman um looked like i don't know how good it is you see i was very scared when i drew it thank you it's, like we said this is a very interesting time for king i mean we talked about this in the last episode but you know he was he was new to his sobriety and um and what I, the way I described uh, Four Past Midnight last episode that I think holds true is that this isn't a book that feels inspired so much as uh, perspired over. It feels like a book that he 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 knew he needed to write more. And he kind of willed himself to write this, you know, there, there's not a lot of inspiration in these stories in terms of, wow, I'm reading like King at his most sort of unfiltered and inspired. What I'm seeing here are stories that uh, feature his talent for storytelling and his imagination mm-hmm. and all these other things. But at the same time, they feel like they move from point A to point B, like he's pushing a rock up a hill, mm-hmm. you know, like he's trying to get us to that point. That said, um, I think Sundog is is surprisingly one of the better stories in here. I know, Dan, you also feel that way in the sense that, uh, you know, the books get better as they go on from Langoliers to Sundog. And uh, and I do agree. I, I think that Library Placement and Sundog are probably the better stories in here. That said, they're still not among his best. As we've said, Four Past Midnight is not uh, probably our, our favorite collection here. We're kind of, you know, <laughs> pushing a boulder up a hill ourselves talking about these. But I think uh, but I do think that there's some interesting stories stuff in Sundog. And so, uh, yeah, so basically he talks a little bit about the origins of this. It's same with Library Policeman, where it's just sort of a tiny little story he tells. Basically, his wife, uh, Tabby, um, 
got got into photography herself. So he says uh, she began to pursue it in a serious way through study, experiment and practice, practice, practice. I myself take bad photos. I'm one of those guys who always manages to uh, cut off my subjects heads, get pictures of them with their mouths hanging open or both. But I have a great deal of respect for those who take good ones. And the whole process fascinates me. In the course of her experiments, my wife got a Polaroid camera, a simple one accessible even to a doofus like me. I became fascinated with this camera. I had seen and used Polaroids before, of course, but I I had never really thought about them much, nor had I ever looked closely at the images these cameras produce. The more I thought about them, the stranger they seemed. They are, after all, not just images, but moments of time, and there is something so peculiar about them. This story came almost all at once, one night in the summer of 1987, but the thinking which made it possible went on for almost a year, and that's enough out of me. And uh, So then he moves on. And uh, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit. Um, let's actually begin by talking, with, by doing a little synopsis here. Do you guys have any synopsis that are uh, okay. present? I'll read mine in the Signet version. This is very short. But uh, the Sundog, you are focusing in on a beast bent on shredding your sanity. That is how it describes it in my book, which I think is a, is a very compelling idea that I'm not sure really captures the broader story. <laughs> Dan, do you have a synopsis yeah, in front of you? Yeah, this is from the uh, the original um, uh, Viking edition, first edition. It says, uh, the flat surface of a Polaroid photograph becomes, for 15-year-old Kevin Delavan, an invitation to the supernatural. Old Pop Merrill, Castle Rock's sharpest trader, wants to crash the party for profit. But the sun dog, a creature that shouldn't exist at all, is a very dangerous investment. There That's you it. go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you got, uh, I think – I don't know where my version has that in. It does. It mostly has um, more of like notes from like Playboy and Orlando <laughs> Sentinel. And oh, Playboy Zero was Gaming. a big fan? Oh, yeah. Four spellbinding tales of horror and evil, any one of which would be sufficient annual output for an ordinary writer – more than just good yarns, these are can't-tear-your-eyes-away stories that burn your imagination. Going to politely Playboy. disagree with you on that one, Playboy. Uh, but hey, I love the articles. Yeah. So uh, so let's, I guess like I'll give sort of a simple breakdown of the story. So basically with Sundog, what we're dealing with is Kevin, 15-year-old kid, he gets a Polaroid camera uh, for his birthday, but every photo he takes, it reveals not a photo of what he's actually photographing, but sort of a weird, strange image of a dog in front of a fence in a dirty yard. And every photo we kind of, so he basically takes this camera to try to understand what's wrong with it to the local Cracker Barrel philosopher, uh, Pop Merrill, who is, uh, who runs a junk shop called the Emporium Galorium. He goes there and Pop Merrill becomes fascinated. And basically, uh, through all the photos they take, they realize that, it's not the same photo that Kevin's camera is taking. It's a series of photos and they are progressing each time. The, the dog is moving in each photo and it moves in that and, uh, in sort of a way where it seems as if the dog is violent and turning towards the cameraman. And what we learn is that, uh, pop is kind of a dangerous person to get involved with. And even though, uh, Kevin, you know, looks up to pop in sort of a weird way, Kevin's dad, Mr. Delavan, mm -hmm. which I find, and we'll talk about that. It's very strange how they just call him Mr. Delavan the whole time. Uh, 
He basically is like, Pop is not someone to be trusted. And it turns out that Pop isn't. He's trying to sell the camera for uh, his own benefit. But it turns out that the supernatural nature of the dog and whatever it represents is more powerful than any of them realize. And things get pretty dark in the end. Um, it's not a story that I would say has a very clear description or, or solution for its mythology. Uh, but I do find it compelling. I mean, I mentioned this in the last episode as well, but there's actually like Aisha, when I say creepy pasta, does that ring a bell with you? No. Do you know what that is? Creepy pasta is sort of, um, does it stick to the wall. Uh, what is it? <laughs> Sorry. I'm <making> a terrible <laughs> joke. Dan, uh, do you know what I mean when I say creepy pasta? Yeah. 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 Like, like, uh, sort of horror mythologies created online and meant to be, seem like they're real, like slender man. And yeah. Uh, slender man was born out yeah. of, uh, of huh. creepypasta and it's it's a lot of creepypasta it's it's kind of a horror genre that began online and it it's told through uh and reddit threads basically and it's pretty fascinating and i'm i'm very intrigued by it as a cultural artifact and a lot of it has to do not only with the internet but with photography in general and so the idea that you would take a photo and it would produce um you know, this photo of a dog that uh, seems unimportant on its surface, but uh, but has sort of a creepy air about it in general, like the context of the photo is both ambiguous and unnerving. That is a very creepypasta kind of idea. And um, and so, yeah, that was kind of something I thought about when I was watching this. But when I think about the larger themes and the hook of this story, it's it's you know, that's this is one of the few King stories where I almost feel as if. I'm having trouble indicating what the real hook is or the real theme is. Mm. So like, I don't know. I'm genuinely curious. Like, what do you guys think is the hook of this story? Like, what is it that you think? I mean, obviously we have a creepy camera and the camera is producing strange photos, Mm. but what is it really? Like, what is the sort of spectral entity that King is toying with here? Because to be honest, in my head, I'm like, is there an actual hook or is the if if we had to use the word hook, is it just King trying to connect the two stories together in his best attempt and not really? <laughs> um, because, yeah, I mean, the Sundog, to be honest, as he got more descriptive with it, it got less and less creepy to me. It yeah. Because I'd get caught up in the details of like what the dog looked like or how it looked in this just with all the flowery language. But um, like it didn't really get creepy or I want to say more grotesque until later on. Yeah. So I don't know if there's, I don't know. I didn't really feel hooked. I was just kind of, all right, it's a dog (laughs) in a picture that's going to pop out. What do you think, Dan? Yeah. I I think it's telling that in King's intro, he pretty much just says, yeah, my wife took up photography and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Because it doesn't, I don't know. I feel like when we, when we talk about the hook, it's usually um, twofold. We usually talk about the, the horror device that he's using, which in this case would be a camera um, where the picture keeps getting closer to you. But then we always talk about, oh, well, what's he using to say? What, what is he using that to say um, thematically? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. Like vampires is our metaphor for uh, small town repression. Uh, for The Shining, it could be alcoholism, a haunt house as a uh, tool to explore alcoholism or just creativity in general. Yeah. Um, whereas with, yeah, with here, I don't know. It's tough because I think, I think the library policeman actually has some pretty rich thematic stuff. Some dog, not so much. I mean, I mean, once again, if we're talking about connective tissue to needful things, there is a little bit of 
I guess maybe a cautionary tale about being too caught up with material possessions or, but that's kind of it. And even that's pretty thin. I think, you know, I feel like that's me reaching. So I don't know how much thematic meat there is here. That doesn't mean I don't enjoy it as a story, but I don't mm-hmm. think like, yeah, I think the dog and the camera are kind of, that's about it. I yeah. don't know. I guess, I guess I, Pop Merrill sort of takes advantage of, of youthful naivety a little bit. But, yeah. I guess yeah. when I think about thematic resonance, I think a lot about Pop Merrill, which this story mm-hmm. almost feels more like a character sketch for him. Yeah. And the dog photos to me, I, I find them creepy sort of in their ambiguity. Uh, and I do kind of like that. We never really get a clear answer as to what, exactly they are and uh but i do think that the story functions more as you know king sort of had this idea of pop merrill this you know and i think he really wanted to toy with the idea that this is um you know a small town uh what's the word i'm looking for figurehead kind of character who uses his power in an unassuming way to exert control and influence over the town. And so I guess a lot of the thematic stuff that rings out to me, especially because we get this huge uh, detour in the middle of the story where Kevin's dad talks about the debt that he had to pay and the ways that pop Merrill sort of bled him dry. And, uh, and it's this whole kind of idea of, of not bowing to money lenders and things like that and personal responsibility, things like that. Like it almost feels, Feels like the An themes are more related special. to that, and this and the supernatural aspect is just sort of layered on top mm. of it, you know. And so that. for me, I guess that's like the best way I would process it is is that this is really a character sketch for um, a guy who, you know, even though this is the connective tissue between stories, he's dead at the end of the story. Spoiler <laughs> alert! We spend so much yeah. time with him trying to like sell the camera to people. I mean, it goes on so long. You're like, okay, I get it. Oof. Yeah, pop, that's why yeah, I don't. Yeah. Understand why he like is supposed to is he just supposed to be an introductory to like how Ace Merrill is like his personality? Yeah, because we don't like, learn don't a lot know. about Ace through yeah. Pop. He was you know? mentioned yeah. offhanded. Off. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen him already in different seasons, but that's also Ace when he's a high schooler and before he's gone away to jail. Um, like I, I, I always feel like the Ace that we end up meeting in Needful Things is a little bit more fleshed out and different than the Ace that we meet in The Body. Definitely. Um, so yeah, Pop doesn't really do any of that work either. I mean, we more find out about him. Like all we get from him is that Ace is like a hoodlum, which we already knew from, yeah. from reading the Body. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, he basically sets up that Ace is in prison and uh, that is important for needful things. But but yeah, so I guess when I think about the hook, I think that is, is, is more so, even though I do enjoy this story mm-hmm. to a degree, I enjoy certain parts of it, especially the grotesque nature of it. I think... Um, that this story just doesn't have a lot to offer in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, thematic meat, which is a big, big difference from Library Policeman, which was almost thematic to a fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we were so imbued with sort of meaning in that story. And here there's so much time spent with this whole concept of um, of of self-sufficiency and the and like, you know, uh, I think sort of the idea of why you shouldn't rely on other people. Uh, and I think that is interesting because even pop sort of has that lesson himself where he's like, Oh, I can sell off this camera to whoever. But even then it's like, you know, he finds himself in a prison of his own making by the end, which is interesting. And I think that's where, you know, Kevin's dad found himself is, uh, you never want to be beholden to somebody right. else in this, in this nature. And I guess you guys have already touched on this, but you know, in a way you could 
pin that to uh, uh, Needful Things because um, just to illuminate you and as a little teaser to you listeners, Needful Things is very much is about uh, basically a small shop that opens up in mm-hmm. Castle Rock where the owner of it, it seems like whenever you go inside, you find whatever dream product you've been looking for, oh, something that really I, triggers I like motif, though. Yeah, yeah, it's like some it's like uh, something that and it's not just like a product you want. It's like a thing that resonates from your past. It's something that, you know, you've always coveted and wanted but to buy it you're not just paying money you're, you're basically uh giving yourself over to the owner of the did store did you ever watch uh, rick and morty i haven't watched rick and morty i feel like they did an episode and i think the the actual name of the shop and i probably am wrong is needful things but it's called it's spelled with like a backwards three or something oh like really that. <laughs> but i like this because the shop owner is the devil though and he like is yeah, selling that's, things. yeah <laughs> that's definitely parodying needful things okay. <laughs> uh which which not a great movie but uh the book itself i i would personally say is among king's best so but i do think that you know i can like you guys said like you you've kind of said it's a it's a thin connection and i would agree with you to a degree but at the same time, I do think that King was genuinely preparing us for Leland Gaunt with Pop Merrill. Mm-hmm. So I think that that was on his mind. I'm not sure personally that I would say that it it works. Um, but at the same time, it is I think that was his intent. Okay. So I think that, you know, this this story is kind of best viewed as sort of it's not Kevin's story. It's not Mr. Delavan's story. It's uh, it's pop story. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually leads us in a nice way to the next section, which is. Is, uh, structure and format. format here uh, what I guess what I was drawn to and you guys would probably agree with me is is there sort of a recklessness in terms of perspective <laughs> like in terms of this yeah. I feel uh, like we jump between different character perspectives a lot in this in mm-hmm. ways that can feel uh, somewhat inelegant I feel like especially um, there is a leap from Kevin's perspective to uh, Pop's perspective that can sometimes there. occur in the middle of a page and yes. that to me I found a little bit disorienting at times because if you you can't really find two perspectives that differ like right. more than the two yeah. of them. So does that resonate with you guys at all? Does that is that something you felt too? I kind of like the the joke because I've read several books that have that kind of back and forth between characters, and while it was still kind of very rough in the yeah. trans the transla- uh, transitions, uh, I liked it a little bit better because like. It was very distinct who you were talking about, yeah, even though I agree it like slammed yeah. into. Um, and th- but then I think what threw me off was when they suddenly introduced Dad's thoughts, John yes. Delavan's thoughts yes. into the situation, and I was like, I don't really care. That is I a mean. character. We'll talk about him in yeah. uh, in Heroes and Villains, but that what a strange like the like tribe of the realist realistic. What was it or the? Oh, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but like it's like such a, a half ass sort of attempt at creating like a third lead mm-hmm. um and we'll talk more about that but dan like how did you feel about sort of the uh the way that perspective operated in this story it's funny i guess i didn't really think about it being being any kind of organizing principle or, or sloppy writing um but you are right i mean it does it does i mean because you go from like when you're i think when you're with kevin you actually think in the beginning pop is maybe a little bit 
more nobler than he is. And then when we go to pop and we see like how he's just like a dirty old bastard, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, but so I guess it wasn't any kind of problem for me. Um, the thing, the thing for me that structurally linked it a little bit to library policeman was once again, doing this, uh, this, um, Oh, they're just scenes. And then, and then we get like a, a long expositional <sighs> story, um, <laughs> which I'll save some of that for misery. And I, obviously I don't think King was, was thinking about uh, those stories, having that in common, but, that was the thing I noticed structurally was like, Oh, this is like each of these stories kind of has that. But, um, and then beyond that, I don't think he's doing anything weird with, uh, with like time or anything here. Right. It's all, it's, I think it's all A to B pretty, pretty linear. Yeah. With, yeah with time wise. Yeah. yeah. It starts to pick up as you get closer to the end, how they split it off between pop and Kevin. Yep. And I think at that point it starts to transition a little bit more seamlessly. Yeah. Um, or at least connect well with it. But yeah, I think, Overall, yeah, there's no time jumps in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it moves pretty well. And uh, I guess it's just like there's certain times when um, I do feel like the I don't know, like I I like what you're saying, Dan. It it works for me in the sense that um, that pop is so charming when you view him through the eyes of a 15 year old. And I really, I really like that because King really captures that idea. Cause when you're that age, you know, you are susceptible, like, like an older, wiser person, especially in the way, and King writes him in, in, you know, we talk about, we use the word folksy with King a lot. And sometimes that is not a good thing, but I think Mm -hmm. in the, in the, in the world of pop Merrill, it works really well. He seems to really understand the voice of that character and the way that that character can ingratiate him to people in ways that you would want to ask him for money because you know that he can help you right you know well Well, and also too i oh no you got asia oh no oh i'm i can wait (laughs) (laughs) all right right. uh yeah so when i i don't know if you if either of you had this experience too but i remember distinctly when i was little there were older kids in the neighborhood or maybe even adults that i thought were really cool because they would always talk to younger kids and they would always um be like, oh yeah, hey, here's some rap music with swear words in it. And I remember just being like, oh, this, this guy is so cool. And then I tell, then I talk to my parents, and they're like, yeah, I don't really want you hanging out with that person. <laughs> like, like, like the adult can detect, oh, that that person's like a tall scumbag or like 100%. does not have had the real best version. interest in heart. Yeah, and I, I think the book that that perspective switch does capture that well. Yeah, that was like my neighbors growing up. There was this uh, guy who lived next to me named Brandon Curtis, and I thought he was so cool when I was mm. young. And then my my parents were like, and then he actually, and it's funny because he started asking me because our lawns were connected and they would never mow their lawn. And then one, and so I would, you know, I would mow my lawn and then there would be this pretty clear distinction between the two lawns. And then one day, Brandon Curtis, who was like four years older than me, he like walked over and he's just like, Hey man, he's like, you wouldn't mind like mowing our lawn too. It's like, it's not that much more. Like, (laughs) yeah. And he was like, he's like, and he was four years older than me. I thought he was really cool. And he's like, I'd really appreciate it. And so I started like mowing their lawn, like, you know, with (laughs) our lawnmower and I was like, and then he was like, thanks, bro. Really nice of you. Uh, <laughs> and then my, while you're at it, can you go buy me a soda? Right. <laughs> but my, my parents hated this kid. And like, they told me later, cause they're like, why are you mowing the Curtis's lawn? And I was just like, well, Brandon asked me to. And they're like, Brandon's an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Straight he's up. Like, he's, a, he's a loser. He's hanging out with eight year olds. There's this kid, Brett, that I remember I, I thought was really cool. Who's a couple years older than me. And, uh, 
I, and I, I, and my dad was like, I don't like that kid. And I would be like, oh, come on, dad. And then Brett asked if he could borrow, not like a Sega game, but like my whole console, my Sega <laughs> Genesis. And I asked, and I asked my dad and he was like, Hello. no, he was like, also you're not hanging out with a kid anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, thank you for that digression there. Um, that was, that, that was fun. I, yeah. So I, I guess like that is a really, that I feel like leaping between those two things and then seeing the disparity between the way that pop thinks, like Mm. getting inside of his head and seeing the darker aspects of him and measuring that against the vision we have of him as Kevin, who is this 15 year old who is very innocent. I think that is like kind of a very subtle nod towards how good King is. King is again later too, when he talks about Kevin, his dad's perspective, Kevin, yeah, like when he's seeing him as like this, it kind of gets a little extra, but like, god adonis type thing as yep. a son but then also oh, the yeah. reverse of how he's like it's nice to know that his son still needs him yeah which you know john devlin was dealing with a lot with masculinity issues in the story i feel like he was questioning himself a lot or yeah. what he was but it's it, i like that idea as well going along with how you, pop is different from how you perceive him and how he actually is performing and what he's actually thinking yeah yeah, it is funny I, that moment when he's, he's like, and man, my son's going to be handsome. <laughs> I'm like, are you proud? What reasons are you proud? Are you breeding your son? Like... <laughs> On that note, I think this is a good time to pivot over to uh, a little section we like to call heroes and villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, Vassal! <laughs> Heroes and Villains is the section where we discuss uh, the heroes and villains of this story, the characters of this story, the zeros of this story to hearken an old uh, title for this section. So I guess we can start a little bit. I actually would like to start because I feel like we've been dancing around it a little bit is with Kevin's dad, Mr. Mm. Delavan. Mm. I found this a very I found him to be a very strange character because uh, King sort of aggressively refuses to refer to him as anything other than Mr. Delavan. Uh, I feel like occasionally he calls him John. Mm. But uh, it is a very strange choice to me. It doesn't um, always feel like there's a snub when he says Mr. Delavan. Yeah. Like subconsciously there. But like <laughs> even when he's he's kind of digging into his whole backstory and we're learning about him. Like, you know, King introduces parent characters a lot and then doesn't give them a lot of uh, bandwidth. But here, I remember being so shocked when I first read the story when he suddenly becomes like a major character because we get mm. this giant chunk of the middle of the story, this huge monologue of him discussing the time that he borrowed money from Pop Merrill and and sort of the debt that he and how hard it was for him to pay off and this whole concept of you know uh, being the breadwinner within the family being the male mm-hmm. figure within the family and also uh you know being honorable and paying back your debts like all of those sorts of things it, it's it's sort of a really strange diversion yet I still even though you do get this this sketch of the character, there is almost this weird disconnect and uh, distance that King mm. puts between himself and the character, because like just by referring to him as Mr. Delavan, I still feel like he is almost this blank slate character. Am I alone in that? Yeah, he didn't. He just didn't. I mean, I, I didn't dislike him or anything, but yeah, other than being kind of a trusty dad, he never really stood out much to me. And even even Mr. Delvin, I like that his first name is John, which has been the name of so many other King like King characters. It's it's almost like even the even when he does bother to call him a first name, it's like a very common first name. You know, yeah. what I mean? it's just, it's like he wasn't really thinking about it. Yeah. 
I almost feel like the the usage of like how he speaks about Delavan almost subconsciously pushes you to have like this kind of um, not I don't want to say dislike for him, but like you said, kind of cold and distant. Like I, every time I. Especially when you get into the story of his background and what happened, I was like, "Oh, poor you! Wow, wow! You should have just told your wife and sucked it up." <laughs> and like, he's like, "I have to be a man and do this." And I mean, I get the time period and that kind of style of thinking that goes along with that. Um, but I feel like just, I kind of wish he had not gone into John Devlin's head. I didn't yeah. need it. Like there was like the part where at the end, and I'm not going to get into that specifically, but like he trips over a table, and you're like, yep. "Okay." Not necessary. He's kind of like in the way and stopping Kevin from doing what he needs to do. Yeah, this really does feel like a story between Kevin and Pop. And Mm -hmm. so I feel like move like working in Mr. Delavan and then not quite like fully engaging with the character. Like we get this monologue from him, but it almost feels like it exists within a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And I I never quite connected with that character. And it to me is such a strange choice. And it's one that never quite really resonates with me. Um, It almost feels plucked from another story. Like maybe, you know, King had written that monologue about that whole sort of money lending situation and then found a way to sort of transplant it here. It has that that. feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And like, like I almost wish that we could have stayed in Kevin's head a little bit more because, you know, if there's one thing that King does well, he writes youth well. And, uh, and, you know, Kevin in a weird way reminds me of the character who begins needful things. Uh, It's a young, I can't remember his name, might be Brian. Um, But it's, like a young boy and he uh and he becomes one of the focal points of needful things and he is around that same age and uh that character is exceedingly well written and i feel like uh you know kevin reminds me of that and so i almost like you know i don't want to spend time in mr delavan's head in this story especially because it just doesn't really resonate or offer sort of uh i don't know i guess it offers a different perspective but it's not what i necessarily need within this story so uh dan any other thoughts on mr Mr. Delavan. Oh man, there's so much to say. (laughs) (laughs) Let me open up my notes. (laughs) Uh, Well then let's talk about Kevin himself. Uh, How do we feel about him as a character? Is he someone who uh, you relate with? I personally, I like Kevin. I think that, you know, uh, that whole concept of like getting a new camera and wanting to pursue photography and that whole thing like that really and his excitement over it and then his disappointment once the camera is faulty and sort of his belief that, oh, it's probably just a problem with the camera, you know, even though the pictures that are being produced are so uncanny and strange. Uh, there is like kind of a sweet innocence to that character that and I do feel like this story does kind of document in its own way a kind of loss of innocence, you know, the loss of trust. And uh, well, I mean, I think in two different ways, like he kind of he learns to see his father in a different mm. way. But then he also learns to, you know, he learns not to trust everybody that he comes right. across through the pop story. And it's it's all frames through sort of this, like, you know, his birthday, this sense of innocence and uh, and the sort of adoption of this hobby, which I find very interesting. Right. The, the fact that you get something that you've wanted for so long and it turns out to just be basically a, a piece of shit in your life, <laughs> <laughs> like a burning trash bag fire. And you're like, I never expected this to be. And I like, you know, now that you say that the sense of this is supposed to be a childlike innocence. Um, and there was something I was going to say and I, I lost my train of thought, but it's. Kevin at first, like the this is pound cake, so I won't get into it. But like <laughs> <laughs> there there are moments where I'm like 
because I'm not a little, I didn't grow up gender male. Sure. So I don't know kind of like some of the deeper things that males go through growing up in that kind of scheme. Because he does talk about like, he's 15, he's like not quite a man, but he's getting so, he's like right on the edge of becoming manhood because 16 is generally thought, at least in Western culture, is like becoming man. Yep. Because you're driving. Right. So, I mean, Kevin, for me, I think there was a distance. Yeah. Because like he was interesting enough, but I just never could fully connect with him. Um, I know he likes, he has bolo, well, he doesn't like, he has bolo ties um, <laughs> that he puts in his drawer. He likes taking pictures and like he hangs out with Mr. Baker. Like, I don't really. But like, we also never see much of him outside of the orbit right. of sort of the general story. Mm-hmm. Like for, in a weird way, I thought of at people from uh, different seasons and the concept that. You know, that's a very disturbing character, but we also get to see that character in a lot of, he's around the same age. We get to see him in a lot of different social situations. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I almost kind of wish that King allowed Kevin, we, he allowed him to sort of exist within bubbles, uh, outside of the camera. It almost seemed like Meg was that role, him trying to force. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. That's interesting. What do you think about Kevin, Dan? Yeah, I like him. I was actually thinking about um, that movie Good Boys that's coming out this August that, oh, that I reviewed yeah. for South by. Oh yeah, um, and they're a little bit they're a little bit younger than Kevin. There, I think they're like twelve or thirteen. But it's this idea of I, I think that it's this this sort of idea of painting an adolescent character who is somewhat savvy and very intelligent and knows there are certain dark things in the world, but can't quite is still kind of oblivious a little bit to them, you know. And that's always really interesting to me, rather than depicting a kid as either completely innocent or completely dirty and like a sex expert or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and so I like, I like with Kevin, I think, I think King does a really good job of painting a character who is smart and and somewhat savvy, but also doesn't quite know the way the world works yet. And obviously gets taken advantage of, but once I think, but I also think Kevin, he has enough spidey sense in him to once he, he does start to get manipulated by pop, he starts to pick up on it a little bit, you know? Mm. So I, which I think plays a lot better than if he had been completely stupid and, you know, never got what pop was, uh, was doing to him. It's interesting that you pull that up too, because there's a point where he starts to like want to follow pop downstairs and like, the the father the adult in the situation is so caught up in one thing he's not paying attention to like kind of all these other triggers like you said he's starting to pick up from pop that something is wrong yeah kevin's picking them up but like john delavan seems to i guess the tribe of realism has dealt his senses in a way yeah whereas kevin's still open to that as yeah. well and that's kind of that childlike innocence as well you still are, he's like he's savvy he knows what's up he like doesn't believe things immediately but like he's still open to things could be weird and that's what ultimately saves him. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's talk about Pop because I feel <laughs> like this is the character that really is the spine of the story. And I don't know if you know this Aisha, but have you heard of the, you know the show Castle Rock on Hulu? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we 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 reviewed the first season on the pod uh last summer and the new one is coming out. I don't know if it'll be out this year. It might be out in early 2020, but it's uh it's actually they're pulling a lot of different King characters and Pop Merrill is one of them. So um, and Tim Robbins, who starred in Shawshank Redemption, is going to be playing Pop Merrill huh. in the next season of Castle Rock, which I find very interesting. Um, 
clearly pre Sundog, but mm-hmm. uh, although I do hope that they throw some some nods into the Sundog, that would be fun. And so, uh, I but I do think that this is a character that has not only captivated King, but captivated sort of um, you know a lot of King fans. And I think it comes from you know a general sense of. I don't know. I think I think when I think about King characters and the ones that really resonate, there is like the sense that this character is connected in a larger spiritual sense to like the like whatever it is that makes Castle Rock magical. Like this character is in some way conscious or unconscious connected to that because this character has so much confidence and so much power within this town that I feel like, you know, he does, he does resonate in sort of this, like he's like a King in this small town, but he, he lives in this little junk shop. And there is a lot, I think that, uh, and the ways that he can sort of pivot around between different behaviors, different characters, different uh, modes of uh, persuasion. I find it to be a very well-written character for this story, I think. And I think that's sort of the writing that really stands out in this is in the clearly careful and thought over uh, creation of this character. Uh, Dan, how do you respond to Pop Merrill? It's funny. I hadn't thought about that, but that is really interesting. And especially in these small town novels, I think you get these characters who, like you said, are are willing or unwilling conduits for outside mystical forces. I keep thinking of um, Larry Crockett a little bit in Salem's Lot. He's a lot dumber of a character than uh, Pop Merrill is, but still is like can kind of sense that he's becoming this kind of gateway, this connector to uh, to to Kurt Barlow and um, uh, Straker, who are the, you know, the two antagonists who come in. Yeah. And I think like also to the fact that pop knows all these, um, what, what does he call the people who like the mad hatters, mad yeah, hatters. Mad hatters. the fact that he knows all them and everything. I think that goes beyond just, so he, he knows them cause he can make a buck off of them. I think he's like kind of tapped into this weird underbelly, which obviously becomes supernatural or certain porn. I, I, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. But that's a, I, I, agree with that. I think that's like a really astute observation. Well, I, I think I guess you're a little Kevin, Kevin, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I two about, I'm sorry. I can't remember his name now, but in under the dome, who is the main villain? Uh, do you remember Dan? Oh, uh, big Jim Rennie. Yeah. Big Jim, big yeah, Jim, yeah, yeah. big Jim to me is a very pop Merrill kind of character. Uh, he is somebody who on the surface is very charismatic and, uh, and has the ability to win people over, uh, by virtue of his own public public presence, but he is also a very predatory character. And I feel like we only see this little bit of pop Merrill where I feel like in another King world, he would have had the potential to be a great villain. Like we, we see him as villainous occasionally here, but he's not fully villainous here, mm. which I do like. I like that there is a humanity to Pop Merrill, but whereas Big Jim is sort of such a monster and under the dome. But at the same time, I do see a lot of similarities between the two. And I guess that in a weird way is what kind of endears me to Pop Merrill as I feel like we're only seeing like 20% of what this character could be. You know what I mean? And yeah, uh, when he dies pretty soon, yeah, I can really, really find out anything, like which that. is, I guess, like when I think about 
the show Castle Rock on Hulu. Uh, Pop Merrill is exactly the kind of character I want them to tell stories about. You know what it's, I mean? Hopefully, I don't know if get you know, taken out real soon. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like I know, it, like I don't know if you know this, Aisha, but like the the second season of Castle Rock, like it incorporates Annie Wilkes from Misery Ooh. and uh, Jerusalem's Lot, like Salem's Lot. I haven't Lot. watched it yet, but I heard. Well, it's not out yet. Okay, uh, I'm like so behind on everything. Yeah, the first season was pretty solid. I think we we had mixed opinions on a where it went but still would recommend mm. uh second season yeah it's like it's inc- it, we're almost like laughing a little bit about how much it incorporates because it's like annie wilkes is in it and then uh pop merrill's in it ace merrill's in it and they I tie uh, jack torn not jack torrance directly but uh well well the first of, season yeah the first season brings in like jack norris's niece which is like absurd mm. or jack yeah. torrance's yeah. and so uh but i feel like the second season of castle rock incorporates so many different characters from within okay. the king verse that it's I almost watch this yeah like we're, we're mean, excited for it but we're also like what is this fan fiction you know but at the same time uh yeah exactly but at the same time it's like i do feel like pop merrill is exactly the kind of character that i would want to see in a show like this because there is more story to tell there's a lot of duality to him because i kind of thought of like the entire time there was a he was just a walking contradiction but not in the way that we normally think of in a negative sense yeah like i mean king is constantly referring to how his nim- fingers are like these clunky looking things, but yet they're like nimble as fuck. And then like also when you were referencing uh, the fact that like, he's the king of the small town, yeah. but then he also goes back to this little tiny apartment with his XX videos that he <laughs> hid away, um, that smudgy grease windows. And that when, like this part two got me when he lays in his bed, the smell of like yellowy old man and sweat yep. puffs up and he like changes his sheets once a month. But like, I not know personally, but I know and understand those characters where it's like they have the money. He could buy a Mercedes Benz or whatever the car he references and have a mansion, but he chooses to live this way and penny pinch. And it's like, when you think of it in the sense of like you have all this money, but he ended up dying. Yeah. Like, well, I think he's less concerned with like the fineries mm, of uh just of success, money. and he just likes power. Mm. You know, and it's like I can be poor but have power because yeah. everyone knows he has money. Mm. You know, mm. so he doesn't need to flaunt it right. because people know that he has money, and that to me sheets. is like a really fascinating dynamic. Mm. And it's something that I feel like King has toyed with here and there, but it's um. It's something that I think is special to Pop. And, uh, but then also, like, King really does do a good job of writing him in a way where, uh, you see that. Like, you can see why people fall under his spell because he does have that charisma. But not everyone. Yeah, not everyone. Which is interesting because, like, as you get further and further, as King gives you bits and bits more to who Pop Merrill is, you get a little more disgusted. He gets a little more, um, he has more more multifaceted. Like, he has anger now as opposed to just being like, this smooth, wise, cracking guy. He's this creepy pedophile type. Well, not pedophile, (laughs) but like just lecherous old dude who makes like your skin crawl. Like he has all these other people have different interactions with him. Yeah. As you. And so I wonder, is it just with adults or like everyone basically has some sort of outside of financially speaking, like negative interaction with him? Well, it does. It does bring to mind for me, which I think is a running theme in King, which is that characters who like human characters who have a lot of power or have a lot of um, charisma within the real world and have a lot of sway within the real world. Once they fall under supernatural forces, like the ones that King brings forth, Mm -hmm. they're almost like bowed in a way like, you know, they are they're. 
like the powers that they possess as humans and as people is almost in a weird way, um, emasculated, undercut, deemed superficial, like Mm -hmm. however you want to view that um, by the supernatural force. And it sort of cows them in this really fascinating way. And that to me is... um, a neat aspect of Pop Merrill, who is, you know, clearly so powerful within Castle Rock, but this camera, of all things, mm. bests him. Right. Like, it wins over him. I like what, what's his name? I don't know what the third person he brings the camera, or fourth person he brings the camera to, the one who lives out in this old house. Yes. And he basically is like, what's the point of this camera? He's like, I mean, yeah, it looks supernatural, I guess, but like, what's the real point of it? What am I going to gain from this? <laughs> and it, that, I, at that point, like Pop's reaction to that, his response to Pop bringing this thing to him, I, I, I think that was one of my favorite interactions with Pop. Like, yeah. Even though it was long and drawn out. Well, yeah, because it's like, he's not used to being questioned mm. in that kind of way. And that to me is really fascinating. Uh, any final thoughts on Pop Merrill, Dan? No, man, I think he's a great guy. I would want to hang out with him. Um, buy, I would buy lots of stuff from him. Would you go to a uh, party of him and Pop Pop from the community were there? Hell yes. Pop, Pop, actually, Pop. I, you know, I actually, I've only seen like a couple episodes of community. Who is, is, who's Pop Pop? Chevy Chase on community? Just some, no, just some random character who's like the popular guy that everyone loves. But he just goes around and says Pop Pop. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I like that you thought it was Chevy Chase. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Old people. Uh, no, that's great. Uh, on that note, I think it's a good time to move into uh, our next section in which we discuss uh, maybe some things that we didn't enjoy so much. It's a section called Misery. She, she died. She just slipped away. Slipped away? Slipped away? She didn't just slip away. You did it. You did it. Welcome to Misery. If you're a constant listener, you probably know that this is a section where we talk about just stuff that, god damn it, it just didn't quite work for us. So uh, when you guys think Misery, what made you miserable in the sundog? Who would like to go first? <laughs> Dan, what I, do you- I, I, Yeah, I'll go first. Do it. I, honestly, not, not a ton of misery for me beyond things just going on too long, which I think is a, a mm. problem of, of all four novellas in this book, uh, particularly when, when Pop, like, I mean, I get why he had to go to several of the Mad Hatters to, to drive home this, like, obsession he has and how the cameras kept taking taking his own Sandy over. But that the writing itself wasn't that bad, so I, I didn't have that as misery. But the one thing I did have was in the beginning when um, Kevin first goes to Pop, they um, uh, they talk about just like the history of cameras and mm. photography, and oh, it goes on yes several pages. And I'll, I'll just read like a, like a paragraph. <laughs> Ridiculous! Like I was like, what is the point of this? Like, <laughs> so it says. Um, so Pop, so Kevin's like uh, he's asking about the you know, Polaroid Polaroid land cameras. And here, here's this is Pop. He says, "Oh yeah, they look like those old time cameras people like Matthew Brady used before the turn of the century, or before the Kodak people introduced the brownie box camera." Anyway, what I mean to say is, Kevin was rapidly learning that this is Pop Merrill's favorite phrase. He used it in the way that that part's fine. Then we go back to Pop. Uh, they tricked it up some, put on chrome and real leather side panels, but still looked old fashioned, like the sort of camera folks used to make doggerotypes with. I don't know what that is. Uh, when you open up the 
daguerreotypes with. Uh, when you open one of those old Polaroid lamp cameras, it snapped out an accordion neck because the lens needed half a foot, maybe even nine inches to focus the image. It looked like old fashioned, and then it just goes on, and you're like, Jesus Christ! Yeah. Like, what, like, and and also, I get I get that he would know a lot about this stuff, but, but like. It looks like King just kind of transcribed what he was being told about cameras, and you know, like if, like if Wikipedia had been around back then and wrote it, and it ju- it just kills the momentum, and that's pretty early on in the in the novella, also, which is funny to me. So, yeah, that was that was my big part, and like I said, not, it's not like the sentences themselves are egregious; it's just really boring and goes on really really long so that was mine but uh what about the uh the two of you i mean i'm similar and like the thing is i agree with you dan in that the mad hatter sections they weren't poorly written it honestly feel felt like uh king was having fun writing mm. them and this is where i talk about like like when i think about the the idea of perspiration versus inspiration it it's it feels to me like like King stumbled upon this idea. Like he, he had these two characters, like the twins, you know, the twins, supernatural collectors, the older women. And he's like, mm-hmm. these are good characters. I need to really riff and run with this a little bit. When the last thing we needed was the huge fucking backstory about these people and the huge, like the descriptions <laughs> yeah. of their house and all these other things. Like, man, it's like, if you think about it, like that whole giant, chunk of text if you think about it on film it could have been done in like like 30 seconds you know like just a couple of montages of him getting kicked out of places and we didn't need the full and i mean obviously that's the difference between film and prose but at the same time i took no real enjoyment in leaving the world of the sundog to go live in the world of all these rich supernatural uh, collectors like and that's an idea that could be fun in its own story but it wasn't really it wasn't landing here yeah do you oh, agree yes i mean overall yes my general sentiment usually for most king books is that why could we just not get to the point already <laughs> um but there were good there were good points something that i've noticed also with king and the word for me in this one was i don't know if i'm saying it right plinth or plinth it's basically like something you use in a structure in the yeah, base. Yeah. But he takes these words and it's like, oh, my God, I found a new word. And he'll just like overuse that <laughs> word and then suddenly just discard it away like a um, let me it's kids make this kid appropriate show. Uh, but he tosses it away after that. And you never hear him use it again. But it's just this one. It's this weird habit I noticed where he'll just like for a chapter, yeah. maybe like three paragraphs just like use the word repeatedly yeah and that gets on my last nerve. he's just on a roll with it yeah which i guess i get and then the other thing was uh what was the drugstore love verdiers oh my god the drugstore the yes description yeah oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that was on mine so if you're like in the first edition it's like chapter 14 number page 697 is the start and i'm not gonna read all of it yeah uh, Castle Rock's La Verdier's super drugstore was a lot more than just a drugstore. Put another way, it was really only a drugstore as an afterthought. It was as if someone had noticed at the last moment, just before the grand opening, say that one of the words in the sign was still a drug, that someone might have made a mental note to tell someone else, someone in the company's management, and here they were opening yet another La Verde's, and they had, by simple oversight, neglected yet again to correct the sign, so it read... 
Nothing more simply, more simply and accurately than Laverde's Superstore. And after making the mince note that someone in charge of noticing such things had delayed the grand opening a day or two so they could shoehorn in a prescription counter about the size of a telephone booth in a long building in the long building's furthest, darkest, most eclectic corner. And it doesn't stop there. <laughs> but like that mostly was a run on sentence. Like, I'm pretty sure there was maybe like why? one period. <laughs> why is it there? No. And just like to me, that whole section of the woman who worked at the drugstore, mm-hmm. like Pop Merrill coming in and her having this like insane scared reaction to it. It just (laughs) it's a neat idea, I guess, but it doesn't really work for me. Like Mm -hmm. the idea that he would come in and Mm -hmm. seem so out of it that she would be even more terrified, like so scared, like the extent of her fear to me never felt authentic Mm -hmm. within sort of the realm of the story. It's a neat idea. Like and it is a very Kingian idea. The idea that somebody is being is being undone by this supernatural presence and uh and you know it extends the, outward yeah it's a neat idea it extends outward but to me it wasn't fully quite earned in here and it was something i kind of rolled my eyes at as i was as i was reading so any other miseries dan not really like i said it, i feel like it's it's usually more these weird um sentences that stand out or weird ideas that stand out but for me it was more just like these long stretches you know what i mean um which, which in a way I don't know, kind of makes it not quite as bad. Like they weren't as glaring. It was just, I, I think it just needs, needs some more editing. This story, this I novella, just like the other ones. Yeah. yeah totally. Um, well, we've talked about what made us miserable, but let's maybe pivot to some things that we thought were pretty good. So we're going to move into a little section we like to call word processor of the gods. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Word Processor of the Gods is a section where we read sections of the book that we thought were pretty well written and uh, stuff that we liked. I can kick things off here. Um, I thought... This little section right here on page 618 of the Signet version, it was just one little line here, but I actually really quite liked it because it it resonated for me in the way that a lot of older people think about the world. And as somebody who writes a lot about technology and the future and where things are going, I found it interesting. So uh, this is kind of when... Pop was, and it's funny because it's so dated, you know, but uh, to- Pop is like considering that whole idea of transferring photos onto videotape. And when he goes there and he, uh, And so he kind of like looks at this new technology and he says, just another goddamn gadget, Pop thought, opening the door and going in. World's dying of him. And then he says, but he was one of those people. World's dying of him. Not at all above using what he disparaged if it proved expedient. And that to me is like the way that a lot of older people I know view iPhones, view, uh, you know, iPads, the various sort of technological advances in the world, they're always complaining about how the world is moving on, but then they use those things. So it's like, oh, it does make things easier. That's totally me. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, I, it's I, always I, me. I hear it. I always, I always yeah. think of the, uh, and I know Randall, you know, I talked about this. I always think about the uh, like guys I went to high school with. Honestly, most of them are pretty conservative, which I think that says something too. And they'll post things like, like these memes, oh, you know, 
when I was a kid, all the neighbors watched out for each other. Uh, we gathered for Sunday dinner, and we knew when to come in because the fireflies came out. Sheriff, you agree? And it's, it's essentially <laughs> lamenting modern times and technology, but I'm like, but you're also using Facebook to post this. You know? <laughs> 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 it's like very, very funny to me. Uh, no, I totally agree. Uh, what what section stood out for you guys? Is there anything that comes to mind? For me, I was gonna say most of mine are uh, cemetery. So, oh, interesting. We can save those for the cemetery. How about you, Dan? Yeah, it's funny she says that because I have one that I'm like I I was gonna put in cemetery, but I don't I don't think it quite goes to cemetery territory. It's just one of the descriptions of the dog and the the picture Mm -hmm. getting closer or the dog getting closer in the picture. but I feel like I just feel like it, he describes the animal really clearly and eloquently. So this is on page 720 of the Viking first edition, um, chapter 12. It says the dog creature had begun its spring. Its four paws had barely left the ground, but along its misshapen backbone and in the bunches of muscle under the hide with its hair like the stiff filaments sticking out of black steel brushes, he could see all that kinetic energy beginning to release itself. Its face and head were actually a little blurred in this photograph as its mouth yawned wider and drifting up from the picture like a, a sound under, heard under glass. He seemed to hear a low and throaty snarl beginning to rise toward a roar. The shadow photographer looked as if he were trying to stumble back another place. But what did it matter? That was smoke jetting from the hole in the dog thing's muzzle. All right, smoke and more smoke drifting back from the hinges of its open jaws in the little space where the croggled and ugly stake while its teeth ended. Now, I I guess that could be cemetery-esque, but like the dog isn't fully coming out yet. And I just, I really enjoyed those those uh, descriptions that just the beast getting gradually closer and just seeing more and more of it. And eventually, which this does go into cemetery territory, he starts talking about it looking more like a wild boar almost and everything getting distorted. But these sections where he's just describing it as a dog seem to me just like a very clear way to illustrate an animal. So I really, I really enjoyed those a lot. Yeah. And like, I actually have a similar one where, cause I have some cemetery stuff about the dog itself, but when it actually started coming out of the photograph, uh, I found this like really well written. And this is in page 727 of the Signet edition, but, um, I like this. So it says, uh, Then the actual birthing of the sun dog into this world began to happen. The camera seemed to gain weight and turn to lead as the thing roared again with a with a sound like a whiplash loaded with steel shot. The camera trembled in his hands and he could feel his wet, slippery fingers wanting to uncurl and let go. He held on, his lips pulling back from his teeth in a sick and desperate grin. Sweat ran into one eye, momentarily doubling his vision. He threw his head back, snapping his hair off his forehead and out of his eyebrows and then nestled his staring eye back into the viewfinder as a great ripping sound like heavy cloth being torn in half by strong slow hands filled the emporium galorium the shiny surface of the bubble tore open red smoke like the blast from a tea kettle set in front of red neon billowed out the thing roared again an angry homicidal sound a gigantic jaw filled with croggled teeth burst up through the shriveling membrane of the now collapsing bubble like the jaw of a breaching pilot whale it ripped and chewed and gnawed at the membrane which gave way with gummy splattering sounds the clock struck wildly crazily so yeah that's one that i think could also be cemetery but i just thought the writing in that was so descriptive so powerful and so interesting so yeah that was one that I had. I have to say the whole, I mean, basically when you get to the point where 
from the backyard scene when they're in the back of uh, Pop's shed area, leading yeah. up to basically the finale of Kevin and versus the Sun Dog, was really well written for me. Like if I had to think of like word processor in terms of like a section, because mm-hmm. a these are the things that I love in the sense of when I read King is it's like to the point. It's very well written. It doesn't go over the top with describing anything. Yeah, um, and the pace quickens where you're like start to feel anticipation almost panic in a way because especially when they're switching back and forth between kevin dad getting the camera and going back and forth and running and trying to get inside to pop inside like first still thinking he's on the cuckoo clock and then suddenly realizing and like the initial and then the gradual excuse me horror of what happens to pop merrill yeah um i think and then it kind of peters off but like that for me was a general chunk of word processing. Yeah, I love that. That's great, uh, Dan. Any other ones that stood out to you? No, I think that I th- those uh, those sun dog sections are where the gold lies. For yeah, me. and we'll touch I love on that little pooch. I love the pooch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll touch on them more in our next section. I have one little last one here, and this is one I loved mainly because it kind of reminded me of Back to the Future with all the clocks. Because uh, I kind of love the way that Emporium Glorium is described as having all these like kind of cuckoo clocks and stuff. And there was one section on five ninety nine of the Signet version where. Uh, where I just really love this little block of text. So there were maybe four seconds when all of them really did seem to be striking, bonging, chiming, clanging, and cuckooing at the same time. But four seconds was all the synchronicity they could manage. And winding down was not exactly what they did. What they did was sort of give up, like water finally consenting to gurgle its way down a drain, which is almost but not quite completely plugged. And that's all. I just thought that was kind of a fun description. And uh, it just reminds me of uh, the beginning of Back to the Future, which is my favorite movie yeah. ever oh. made. I mean, that is a good scene, though, because you can't, you definitely feel what that would be like. To be Indeed. Uh, but you know what I'm feeling like right now is walking around a little thing we like to call the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Welcome to the cemetery. The lightning is striking, the clouds are gathering, and we're all shivering in our booties. Uh, What... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my rain our booties, booties. <laughs> our yeah, booties in our, uh, our galoshes think uh what would you guys say is is like uh is a section that really spooked you out while you were reading what what stands out to you when we say spook what are we meaning because i you know like like creepy vibes or like just kind of like just makes my skin crawl both whatever scared you have, okay. is what comes to mind dan what did you have i think for mine i mean you read a little bit of it but um that final section where we actually see the sun dog emerging from the the polaroid yeah um it's freaky because i think when i was going into that for some reason i was re- remembering it being just like the dog kind of hopping out of the picture or something but i like that it's this demonic bird thing and also too they talk about the the camera's starting to melt and fuse mm. into Pop's hands mm. and all the liquid plastic and all that. So that final scene was was really creepy for me. Um, and 
I don't know. I think just talking about the membrane and like the birthing and stuff, it just paints this really vivid uh, picture. I, I, I do think it gets undercut a little bit by this really weird epilogue uh, that King puts in there. <laughs> where, I, where I guess it's implied that like what the the printer or something. I can't oh, remember. Yeah. Like uh, that, yeah, like it's a new computer and uh, it, it just the prints. Dog is not the, lazy. The, the dog is loose again. It is not sleeping. It is not lazy. It's coming for you, Kevin. It's very hungry and it's very angry. But it, which seems like such a silly afterthought. You know what I mean? Like what? Why not just have him in his closet and he hears the dog growling right. or something? You know what I mean? It would have been so much better. But that being said, I, I do think that last that final section is um, super creepy. I have one more in my head, but I'll, I'll wait to see hear what y'all say because um, I don't want to say. Yeah, that final that. section, the epilogue, is something I'll probably talk about in the mm-hmm. final thoughts of the episode because yeah. it is. I think it is something <laughs> I that deserves. And my eyes. <laughs> I did too. I think it deserves its own section. But since we were talking about. Um, uh, 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 sort of the camera melting all over pop. I'll read a section of that because that to me is also one of the more, it's also one of the things that I remembered from this story after having not read it in a long time. So uh, I kind of love just how gruesome and grotesque this is. So on page 721 of the Signet edition, here's one section of it. I'm going to jump over uh, two pages later where it gets even more grotesque, but uh, dark plastic heated to a sludge, like warm wax ran over pop's fingers in the back of his hands and thick runnels carving troughs in the in his flesh the plastic cauterized what it burned but kevin saw blood squeezing from the sides of these runnels and dripping down pop's flesh to strike the table and smoking droplets which sizzled like hot fat so that's it that's one part that really uh, i was like holy fuck and then um this section here i kind of particularly love so uh <laughs> As Kevin watched Frozen, looking through a curtain of flashing, zinging dots that last white explosion had put in front of his eyes, the sun dog roared again. The sound was smaller now, with less of that sense of uh, that it was coming from beneath and from everywhere, but it was also more deadly because it was more real, more here. Part of the dissolving camera blew backward in a great gray gobbet, mm-hmm. striking Pop Merrill's neck and expanding into a necklace. Suddenly, both Pop's jugular vein and car artery gave way and spraying yeah. gouts of blood that jetted upward and outward in bright red spirals. Pop's head whipped bonelessly backward. That section to me is like so descriptive yeah. and so vivid yeah, and so scary. Parts. I like the fact that they, he like likened it to jewelry as well, like yeah. a bracelet of oh, I love it. It's so anytime freaky. they get anytime like a carded artery is gone over, I just yeah. get like, oh, yeah, yeah. I know, yeah. and King always frames it like it's like. Hey. It, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, hey, by the way, this is happening. <laughs> Here's in gory detail, but not too much, but just enough to make you know what's happening. Right. And then, like, this is jumping back a little bit earlier, but this is just a description that I thought was so gross, uh, where I believe it's Pop. Yeah, he's talking about... Uh, a person that he knew. So he says, I saw a man lose his hand in a roller once and I never want to see anything like that again. It was like watching a charge of dynamite go off in a rubber glove stuffed with meat. <laughs> it's that like, come on, delicious. dude. <laughs> that kind of made me hungry. I'm not going to lie. When I was <laughs> Were there any others that you had, Aisha? I have one because uh, most of mine have been read already but it was when molly was having her freak out period um and started thinking of her i think it was her niece or her cousin or something like that and her stuffed panda named paulette 
So it's a page 701 in the first edition. Where was I at? Here we go. Uh, for Sorry. Here we go. Her niece owned a big soft panda toy, which she had for reasons which would probably make sense only to another little girl named Paulette. Somewhere inside of Paulette was the electronic circuit board and a memory chip on which were stored about 400 short, simple sentences such as, I like to hug, don't you? And I wish you would never go away. Whenever you poked Paulette above her fuzzy little navel, there was a brief pause and then one of those loathsome little remarks would come out, almost jerk out in some remote and emotionless voice that seemed by its tone to deny the content of words. Ellen thought Paulette was the nuts. Molly thought there was something creepy about it. She kept expecting Ellen to poke the panda doll in the gut someday and it would surprise them all, except for Aunt Molly from Castle Rock, by saying what was really on its mind. I think tonight after you're asleep, I'll strangle you dead, perhaps, or maybe just I'll have a knife. (laughs) And for me, I like have this not fear, fear, but I love the idea of like soulless doll things Mm -hmm. coming to life. Because my great aunt, we would go to her house in Wisconsin. She had this huge house and it was just like she had this wall of like dolls Uh and creepy things that would follow you. Pictures and like dolls just always creep me out because they're tiny, but they could still probably... (laughs) hide somewhere and come out (laughs) i love it i have one last one here um this is a mad hatter section and i just kind of love this and i believe they're talking about um this is like a section where he's talking about the general idea of mad hatters and the various sort of um uh horrors that they encounter and i really like this one so uh most of them had a ripping good time some did not There was that one fellow from Wolfboro, for instance. He hanged himself in the notorious Tecumseh house, where a gentleman farmer had, in the 1880s and 90s, helped his fellow men by day and helped himself to them by night, dining on them uh, at a formal table in his cellar. The table stood upon a floor of sour-packed dirt, which had yielded the bones and decomposed bodies of at least 12 and perhaps as many as 35 young men. All vagabonds. The fellow from Wolfboro had left this brief note on a pad of paper beside his Ouija board. Can't leave the house. Doors all locked. I hear him eating. Tried cotton. Does no good. Just a spooky little section that I feel like could be a whole King story unto itself. But he kind of just packs it in this little paragraph. And that's a a really one of those moments where I just love King because he can do that. You know what I mean? So yeah, that's uh that was the end of my cemetery there. Dan, any others for you? The only thing I was going to say was just uh the section where Pop thinks he's destroying the camera but mm-hmm. is actually destroying the the cuckoo clock. Um just like the idea of that, you know what I mean? Like like just seeing things differently than in your mind than it's being presented to reality. I, th- I th- with the character like Pop who we've seen as being so powerful and manipulative so far that just kind of like that's like a low, low grade, low key cemetery for me. Just a, mm-hmm. a little bit spooky. Yeah. So that was, no, that was I, the totally, only I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, is anybody else feeling hungry? I'm a little bit peakish. I'm well, a little, just bit, a little peakish. bit, just a little bit, a little bit. Just a little bit. I could use a, a slice of pound cake myself. So we're heading over to pound cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, Mama. Welcome to Pound Cake. We're hungry and we are going to feast on what we like to view as Stephen King's 
uh, maybe silliest moments. And that is a section we like to call pound cake. And uh, there's a few fun ones in here. Would anybody like to kick off? Does anyone have any? I have one. Bring it. Uh, So I'm going to go backwards in mine, but I'll start with just one. So it was page 652 in my book, and it was when Kevin and um, Mr. Devlin came home after destroying the camera or what they thought was the sun camera. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're sitting there giggling and having a great time. And Meg and the mom come in and they don't quite understand what's going on. And Meg's do they even say Mrs. Devlin's actual name? I don't remember. I don't think they do. Probably not. (laughs) Mrs. Devlin says like her mom or Meg's like, mom, why are they acting like this? And her one response was because they have penises, dear. (laughs) As if that explained everything. And I was like, I don't King. (laughs) Love it. Uh, Dan. I, the one I heard down was, uh, it's, I think it's one of the first time, uh, times we hear pop's internal monologue and he, and he refers to, uh, porno tapes as, Oh, those new fuck tapes. I just love the idea of this like old guy in the eighties, all of a sudden be like, Oh cool. I can, Oh wow. I can, I can bring these home now. And like calling them the, the like those newfangled fuck tapes. Yeah. <laughs> I have the section right here and it makes me laugh too. So he's like, now there was nothing to do, but wait for the Delavans to arrive. Pop took the video cassette upstairs to the cramped little apartment where he lived. He put it on top of the VCR he had bought to watch the fuck movies you could buy nowadays. <laughs> That's more sophisticated. That's Pop's spare time as he just like sits around and watch watches uh, VHS porn. <laughs> I love it too. And then there's like this section. Uh, so he's talking about the things that he has hidden in his drawer, and he says, "In this deep drawer were a number of gold uh, Krugerons, a stamp album in which the least valuable stamp was worth six hundred dollars in the latest." Scott Stamp catalog, a coin collection worth approximately $19,000, two dozen glossy photographs of a bleary-eyed woman having sexual congress with a Shetland pony, and an amount of cash totaling just over $2,000. I feel like he puts, like, really badly hidden Easter eggs in his thing about sex. It's like, hey, here's a picture of a Shetland pony with a woman, or like when there's a random thing that looks like a dildo on Pop's desk that Kevin notices, and you're just like, so we're just gonna glaze over that. Oh yeah, I remember that. I think Pop just has a dildo standing on his <laughs> desk like, for no reason. That, oh, that actually, man. the Shetland Pony section, or uh, that little bit of writing, it does feel sort of reminiscent of Needful Things a little bit, just like having these illicit things around to either blackmail people or, like, who, like does Pop have that because he's like getting off on there because he's he wants to use it somehow or I, I don't know who knows pops a man of mystery i don't know i love it it's so weird and uh, yeah and it's like you know to me i remember reading that when i was really young and it was very disturbing to me and then i remember i got a little bit older and the internet was a new thing and a friend of mine showed me like bestiality porn and it was so disturbing to me and i remember when he showed it to me the first thing i thought of was the sundog and i because like i remembered the shetland pony section Uh, and i was like that's not a real thing you know what i mean and then uh my buddy showed me that and i was like holy fuck this is very disturbing a a prank that circulated my dorm freshman year when i was at florida state this might be tmi but like if someone left the room someone else would set their desktop to like mm. a bunch of bestiality pictures as the background and everything, which we thought was like so funny at the time. <laughs> now, now looking back, I'm like, Oh, that was like really disturbing. Cause I don't, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't, <laughs> like, that's a pretty freaky thing to put on someone's desktop, you know? And so, yeah, I just remember like you left the room, you come back and there would be, 
there'd be this mosaic of like bestiality uh, porn in there. It's just, it was really disgusting. So yeah. Nasty. We know what pops into. Yes. You know? uh, <laughs> those fuck tapes. Man. Now that we know what pops into, I think we're all a little bit full. We've had our fill of pound cake. Unless you have any more. Mm, ooh. Bring it. Do I? Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. So I think it was lady luck. Pop and lady luck. I was thinking, and it's, um, page 643 in mine. Okay. So you never, ever asked Lady Luck for a date. She had a way of standing men up just when they needed her the most. But if she showed up on her own, well, it was wise to drop whatever you were doing and take her out and wine and dine her just as lavishly as you could. That was one bitch who always put out if you treated her right. (laughs) (laughs) I put the book down after that point. (laughs) I don't blame you. Uh, that's I, del- I picture like Stephen King right that he's and, like, like, yeah. and like ah very wise advice for, for <laughs> <Right>. a <fight." laughs> he's like I got that one right on <laughs> he's like that he's like that's a free one from your old Uncle Steve Uncle Stevie <laughs> uh, that's amazing I'm full I think we got to walk this off in a little place we like to call King's Dominion there's another world out there I know there is. Welcome to King's Dominion. This is the section where we talk about connections to other books in the Stephen King universe. And this one's pretty wild because not only is this a Castle Rock book, but we actually reference a town from another book that we have discussed in the pod. We'll get there shortly. I got to kick things off, though, because on page 601, Pop says the phrase happy automatic crappy. And what does that make us think of, Dan? Sorry, say that one more time, Randall, and cut out for a minute. The, I heard, I heard, happy, happy, crappy, happy, kid, happy, crappy. Kid. That's it. That's all, okay, <laughs> sorry, I just heard happy, crappy. I'm like, that's the kid, right? <laughs> well, he says happy, automatic, crappy because he's talking about cameras. Yeah. But whenever we hear happy, happy, crappy, we have to bring up that this isn't somehow, some way related to the kid from the stand. I, I, I actually found that I was going through an old script of mine, um, like a, just this one act I wrote in college, and I used, I used the term happy, crappy, and I'm like. <laughs> oh, I totally saw that from the kid. Uh, <laughs> and then yeah. pop, apparently. Yeah. And yeah. pop. Uh, any other? What, Aisha, what, what King's uh, Dominion stood out to you? So, because I never know anything, <laughs> I did some digging, and I'm only going to raid one because I don't want to take anything from either of you. Perfect. But uh, let me find what I had. Because it's actually, okay, so when he talks about, I don't know, remember what section exactly, but it was more when Pops is waxing philosophically again about people in town having these stories, these wild, crazy, um, super paranormal or supernatural experiences. And he mentions the Christine car. Yes. So that was one that I caught. There you I was go. Very happy with myself. <laughs> they they, uh, they mentioned Cujo in, yes. in this, but uh, when he's thinking about the dog, he uh, or when he's describing the dog, it, it's actually almost weird that he mentions Cujo in another story about a horrific dog. Like yes. I, it almost feels weird that there's not more of a connection there. I, I don't know. It, that was like stood out to me a little bit. There's also another minor Cujo connection that pops up later, but we'll talk about that in a moment. First, I want to talk about more some of the more uh, blatant ones, like on page 610, we just learn a little bit about Ace that kind of sets us up 
for uh, needful things. So on page 610 of the Signet version, uh, could be pop said indifferently. People get up to all sorts of didos. Look at my nephew there, for instance, Ace, doing four years in Shawshank. And for what? Busted into the Mellow Tiger. He got up to didos and Sheriff, By- Sheriff Painborn slammed him in the jug for it. Little ring meat got just what he deserved. And that sets us up because uh, Ace is just getting out of prison when we meet him in Needful Things. Yeah. So. What, what is ring meat? Yes. Was it like, a, like anus or like I'm, a, like a ring, ring around someone's dick? I wasn't sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I is it a so. ring of me? Also, what are didos? Because he uses that word a lot and not just in the story. I've heard it before. Uh, I hear she's a great pop singer. And that's Well, that's multiple <laughs> didos. What if you have just one dido? That's her. <laughs> I'm not sure. I hear, let me Google that. I've he got, gets up computer. to multiple didos. I was like, okay. King, I don't even know if people back in the 80s would know. Uh, let me see. I'm Googling it. A dido is uh, someone who performs mischievous tricks or deeds. Where is the origin of this word? Like, uh, I don't know. Is that where Dido the singer got the name Dido from? <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. I would guess so. Dido, reach out to us and let us Her know. Her music is very, very mischievous, as you might say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, she, hey, she links up with Eminem, you know, that he's a, he's a, mm. he's a, he's a he loves mischief. There yeah. you go. Uh, uh, page 625 of the Signet edition, we get uh, a, a cameo from Norris Ridgewick and Andy Clutterbuck, the two local deputies. Uh, both of them, well, more so Norris, play major roles in the Needful Things story. I love Norris Ridgewick. He is a character I absolutely adore, uh, especially because he's played by the great Ray McKinnon in the Needful Things film. Who I love uh, yeah, he's a he's a great actor. We also get uh, cameos. We mentioned this earlier from Alan Pangborn and uh, Polly Chalmers. Polly Chalmers runs the uh, sewing kind of company so, within town. So-and-so. It's like you sew and sew or something like that. And uh, she plays yeah, a pretty major role in um, needful things. Although I will say that in the Castle Rock TV series, the marked lack of discussion of Polly Chalmers was annoying to all of us mm. who had read needful things. So, cause she's a major character. Anyways, this was the other very interesting King's dominion that I found was that, uh, King kind of drew some pretty, uh, blatant and aggressive parallels to his book, The Talisman. Have you read The Talisman, Aisha? Not yet, but I have it in my house right now. Well, it's okay because it's very long and it's kind of a tough read. I, I, I like Talisman more than some of the other losers. I believe, uh, Justo and Mel were less enthusiastic. I mean, but Randall, you were saying because you and I, I caught one talisman reference, but you said you caught like some big ones. I think so. I'm, well, excited, I'm excited to hear what this is. Well, why don't you say what the what you caught? Because what I have to say is related. But so, uh, yeah, uh, um, uh, uh, Kevin has a dream about being in Oatly, right? The, the mm-hmm. town, yeah, and that is a town in the talisman where um, the Jack, uh, the, the main character Jack, stops. Actually, again, he gets kind of abducted and then gets sent to this. Um, home for boys where he actually meets this uh, werewolf character named Wolf. There's this big, horrific stretch in this orphanage where um, Wolf and Kevin escape essentially. And like, it's, it's really, it's, I think it's the best stretch of the novel and it's about 200 pages. So it's like a little cool mini novel within a larger book that I don't like very much. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so I just caught the town Oatly, but what did you, is there something beyond that that I'm missing? Yeah. Well, I'll say this, that I, I love the edition of Oatly and I find it, 
to be interesting because clearly this town was on King's mind and the way he writes Oatly in the talisman. And, you know, like I, I also love the uh, sunshine gardener home for boys section of talisman, but, and you're right that uh, the Oatly section sort of leads into that, but the, Oatly yeah, is, the is the home, the home isn't in Oatly, right? No, like it's not in Oatly or something or, or Oatly's yeah. just this kind of like derelict town. Currently yeah. That. Like Oatly, the way that he frames that town in the talisman is like, it is basically like a rotten town, you know, and that and it's it's a really striking section of the book where uh, where uh, Jack, the main character, basically gets a job lugging beer kegs around in Oatly at a bar. And basically everyone who goes and gets wasted there and parties there is like. A monster like they're all fucking pedophiles they're all they're all like good old boys they're all violent they're all so you know. we're assuming kevin kind of knows that oatley has a, a that kind of nature because he like there's a point where he specifically king writes that like his kevin's mind is struggling to do like oatley and what other city as like his yeah. reference for polaroidsville yeah and maybe that's the thing is maybe he's like driven through oatley mm-hmm. like there is the sense that kevin knows the city to some degree and and I feel like King maybe was toying with the idea of revisiting Oatley in a larger way, but he frames the city as such a corrupt, rotten city within the talisman that I feel like it's very interesting and striking that he chose to bring it back for this in his nightmare. So we basically visit it in uh, Kevin's nightmares and, and I actually find this to be a pretty freaky section of the book where everybody that exists within this town is two dimensional. Mm-hmm. Like uh, there's a talk oh, of like an over, Overweight woman, but when she turns sideways, she doesn't exist. She disappears and then yeah. comes back around when you. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's a freaky idea to me. But the part, the other part of the talisman that it references is that there's a homeless man that keeps screaming at uh, Kevin, "Fushing thief, mm. fushing thief!" Oh, is and that he's from saying. The- yeah, he's saying fucking thief, and that is a reference to the talisman at the end. Uh, there is a spider that kind of haunts Kevin within the final hotel where he finally finds the talisman. And there is a spider that keeps screaming at him, fushing thief, fushing thief. Oh, man. Yeah. Is it a different Kevin or the same Kevin? What was that? Or Jack. Oh, yeah, I meant Jack. Yeah, it's a different character. (laughs) But it is to me, it is interesting to me what kind of parallel King was drawing between the Sundog and uh, the Talisman, because it's hard for me to sort of find a uh, connection between the two. I would say that the way that he describes the greater world of the like the photo of the dog, the fact that the dog uh, is set against this disgust, like this uh, gross fence, this uh, untended lawn, like a very neglect world the idea that the the photo could have been taken in Oatly is very interesting to me because uh i think that was a town that king found to be inherently uh broken and that to me is uh is a fun idea he doesn't fully explore it he doesn't really explain to us why he's brought kevin's dreams to Oatly and why he's tying it to the talisman the talisman was uh you know probably what like four years old by this point uh at the time he wrote it yeah and um could it also be that maybe I don't know, this is a stretch, maybe, and especially since it's 
the Gardner Sunlight Gardner House for Bo- Home for Boys is not in Oatly, but is it implying that there is there a connection between the sun dog and like a werewolf or something? Mm. I, I don't know. Like that, I don't know be because the wolves are mostly well. No, there are evil. I mean, actually, you know what? There are a lot of evil werewolves within the talisman. There is obviously Wolf, the good wolf, uh, yeah. but mm. uh, <laughs> wow. but there are evil werewolves within that world. And the way that he describes um, the evolution of the dog within the photos, where it evolves from not just a dog but into something more malevolent could point to the fact that yeah maybe this is a uh, one of the evil werewolves does like does the dog actually appear in the other king like no although it's... but that's the thing is you could argue that uh it's in a wolf form it's like yeah a, you know yeah the thing we know. think is so a dog monstrous. at first is actually a werewolf okay because so. i get they he hovers on this like it's so monstrous that you can no longer describe it and he hovers with that pig um description as well but like it just kind of turned into i guess i never got the image after a while of a werewolf so that's interesting i, don't yeah. know, I guess i have to read i think talisman. it's a fun thing yeah i mm-hmm. i would say i would say talisman is worth a read it's 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 a weird book it's a book he co-wrote with P- peter straub and he actually wrote a sequel to it that oh. came out in probably 2001 um or yeah, 2000 2001 right. I, like, I like black house a lot actually. yeah like and black it's too. black house is a sequel and it's okay. very connected to the dark tower mythos uh as is talisman like honestly one of the things we discovered when we in our talisman episode which you can go back and listen to right now is uh is that it's one of the earliest books that connects to the dark tower mm-hmm. mythos sort of okay. in the larger sense uh although at the time that king wrote it i don't think he was really thinking in that regard but he was able to sort of retrofit it in later books so so yeah and then the only other thing that i had was that um in a section where in one of the dreams where he's in oatly there is a cujo there's sort of like an offhand cujo reference um where let's see so the fat woman who couldn't be fat since she was perfectly flat but who was fat anyway came next she appeared pushing her own shopping cart filled with polaroid sun cameras she also spoke to him before he passed her be careful boy she'd say in the loud but toneless voice of one who is utterly deaf pop's dog broke his leash and he's a meanin he tore up three or four people at the trenton farm in camberville before he came here it's hard to take his picture but you can't do it at all lest you have a camera and so the idea of camberville the, you know it's the camber farm where mm. cujo kills people so okay uh so it's a I, weird little reference and it seems to just kind of it kind of almost just feels like king toying with his universe and throwing out certain words that he knows are resonant but i'm not sure that there is a larger grander idea behind all of it mm. i'm curious about okay so kevin basically gets his answer to to the problem in his dream or in his nightmare yeah and I, from some of the things I've read and some of the things I've been following, King likes this idea of like an not overall good co- like consciousness out there, but something that like gives you hints. Yeah. So I don't. I was wondering if that's like a or what do you guys feel if that's a connection? Like the Polaroid woman was his specific, and I think they mentioned something about like the dog catcher. Yeah. And how the dog catcher is like sent the woman to warn. So I'm like, who's this? dog quote-unquote dog catcher yeah. is he that's interesting i th- i mean honestly i don't feel like i feel like this is an example of king throwing things out mm-hmm. that maybe he thought would like you're right though there is that whole idea of the um of the like what's the word i'm looking for uh 
uh, the person who offers a warning, mm. you know, and basically is like, let me guide you towards the answer. It's just like in this instance, even though he brings us to Oatly, he references Cujo, he references the talisman. I It still is hard for me as a reader and especially someone who has read Olive King to dry to try to draw like um, uh, coherent connections mm-hmm. between it all and more so just this is where i kind of talk about that whole idea where i feel like this was king sort of connecting dots mm-hmm. like forcing himself to connect dots yeah. in ways that he was allowing his viewers to fill in some of the or not viewers but readers right. to fill in the gaps okay uh where i'm not sure that he fully understood what he was doing but What's, maybe yeah it's similar to i mean what we were talking about with library policemen with like okay the I guess it's not confirmed that the librarian is the same creature as Pennywise is, but th- there's still so much thematic tissue. You're like, wait, maybe, I don't know. You know, and it's, it's kind okay. of that, like, and I think it's a danger of like a multiverse. I mean, or not a multiverse, but like a shared universe. Yeah. Um, and there's many times where King knocks it out of the park with, with how he connects things. But then I, I wonder sometimes if there's this pressure to feel like he has to connect everything, even though it doesn't necessarily warrant a connection. So he just kind of goes halfway with it. I mean, I feel, I feel that way sometimes when I, when we get into King's Dominion a little bit. Yeah. This is one of those instances where I feel like the connections are compelling, but without doing a lot of mental gymnastics, I can't mm-hmm. really find the right, the, the like a clear connection, okay. you know, but it's compelling. I always wonder if I'm like, am I re- reading too much in this? Because I don't know like as much of the sure. universe as everyone else does. Well, I'll so say I'm this: like, as somebody who does know the universe, I still feel like sometimes I might not be getting the full extent of it. Mm-hmm. So it's like. You know, there might have been a grander idea there, and maybe one of our listeners can, uh, you know, offer their own idea about what the connection truly is. But here, it's more so to me just kind of like uh, some fun Easter eggs that maybe don't, like where the sum is not greater than the parts. You know what I mean? The parts themselves (laughs) are interesting, but they're more so just a means to an end to get us to the end, you know? Okay. So, uh, any other King's Dominion that you guys noticed? Not for me. No, no. Yeah, those were the ones for me. So again, kind of a curious uh, book to claim as the uh, as the tissue between Needful Things and Dark Half. We do get mentions of the books, but I would say that it's more so like, hey, look, there's a character who's going to be important later. <laughs> you know, so on that note, I think it's time for us to move on to our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. (laughs) Okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. So, I think this is a good opportunity not not just for us to... to rate the sundog, but maybe, and Aisha, I know you probably haven't had time to read the Langoliers mm-hmm. and secret window yet, but Dan and I have both read it. So I think this would be a good chance for Dan and I to give our, our kind know. of four past midnight review. But, uh, so why don't we kick it off with you, Aisha? What was your personal rating on the sundog on a scale of one to five bright wed, bright wed, I know that feeling every day. Uh, if he had cut out a good 200 pages uh, of, di- of of content, I would have given it a three and a half, eh, leaning closer to four. Okay. Yeah. But 
It took. It was. It was hard for me. Yeah. I want to say three. Three. Three out of five. I'm being. I know I'm being very hard. Oh, it's right okay. Now, but bring it. We like it. We. I feel like that's that's the benefit of the pod is we're not here to sugarcoat mm. things. Set my standards high. Steven, yeah. Get it together. And so for <laughs> me, I, I I feel similarly. I would give Sundog a, a three out of five in terms of uh, bright red Pennywise clown noses. For me, it's it's an interesting. It's an interesting story. It feels it feels like almost weirdly enigmatic and and it, it doesn't like I feel like the the setup. I remember I felt this when I first read it too. I think the setup is really fascinating. This idea of these photos um that are emerging from the Polaroid camera that aren't, you know, that come from maybe an alternate dimension or something. But, you know, for King, I feel like the story is much more a character sketch for Pop Merrill and uh, the supernatural element almost feels like an afterthought. You know, that's kind of how I generally feel about it, which is why the ending of the story in which, you know, Mm -hmm. Kevin gets this computer and this printer and when he tries to use it, uh, it basically tells him that the dog is still out there. Is the dog in the computer? Yeah, it's bizarre. And it almost feels like uh, in that last moment, King's trying to make a comment about technology. Mm -hmm. And that to me is is not interesting and not earned. (laughs) Not at all. I guess, you know, this, and and I'm probably too late with bringing this up, but it was an interesting point where, like, Kevin is mentioning that the sun dog no longer is coming after him. And it was when... He saw on the wrong around the dog's neck. It was the tool that Pop had. Oh instead yeah, of like the the bolo tie, and I'm like he kind of really flushed those out for you. Like why those symbols meant like you belong to the dog or the dog belonged to you. Because after a while, they're like referencing Pop's dog. Yeah. So I think that would have been an interesting turn if they like flushed that out more. Maybe that would have explained more of the computer for yeah. me, and maybe yeah. I would have liked that ending a little bit better. But it just yeah. seemed like. Okay, so is now technology has evolved from camera to computer, and so the dog is somehow in his computer. Yeah, it's weird. I literally, I find that ending very baffling. And like, um, yeah, go down. Why don't they just? Why don't they just end without the epilogue? Like, I think the ending of the book is fine before that. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, weird, it's so tacked on. It feels very. It it's feels so very tacked on. Yeah, and yeah. I, and I guess like considering all of that, I would give it a, a three bright red Pennywise clown noses. I do think Pop Merrill is a compelling character. Mm-hmm. I want to see more of him, and I'm excited that I get to see more of him in uh, Castle Rock season two. <coughs> Excuse me, but um, but yeah, I the Sundog to me feels like sort of a, a collection of ideas, a bag of ideas, um, something to sort of. You know, and like he describes it as connective tissue between stories. I don't necessarily think it it works in that sense uh, in a satisfying sense, but I can kind of see where he's coming from. There's some similar themes. There's a few characters that intersect, but you know, it's not like Kevin Devlin pops up in, in needful things at all. And pop Merrill obviously dies at the end of this. And it's not like Ace plays any kind of sizable role in uh, the sun dog. So it's, it's a curious, like just like library dog or library dog. Oh my God. It's like <laughs> library policeman. It's like, uh, it's, it's sort of a weird uh, side detour in the King universe. It's not a story that I feel like most King fans have probably read. Like these two stories feel to me 
like uh, Deep Cut King, you know, mm-hmm. where they're not the best things ever, but they do reveal some weird, interesting detours and uh, and wrinkles of the author that I feel like don't necessarily pop up elsewhere. So I find them valuable, but uh, but I'm not going to say that the Sundog is a story I'm going to rush to reread again. So, Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I am going to go with uh, three and a half, white wed, Pennywise Clown. Mm-hmm. No, um, <laughs> I, I, I feel it's like on level of, as a, of the library policeman for me. Um, I actually like the final horrific image of it. Like, you know, just like it's kind of like a weird idea. I like what you said about Deep Cut King. Um, I do think it's too long. I think there's stretches that go on for a while. I think both of them could have been trimmed down into really good 30 to 50 page short mm-hmm. stories instead. Um, but I, but I, they are sequenced well in Four Past Midnight and they, for me, they do make it so the collection gets better as you go along. Um, and I I felt like toward the end, King was figuring out a little bit how to write straightforward horror again in a way that he doesn't with the Langoliers and, and Secret Window. I mean, they're, they're still meandering, don't get me wrong, but they're they're not meandering in any kind of deal breaker sort of way for me. Like Langoliers, I was like, man, how I cannot finish this thing. Like it was taking me forever to get through it. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel that way here. Like I could kind of see what his end game was with both of these. It was just taking a little bit while to get there. I think there, I think there's chunks you could take out of these, whereas I'm I'm not sure I could say that with Langoliers and Secret Window. I think those are stories that just kind of don't work. Um, yeah, so three and a half white wed Pennywise clown noses. Are we are we giving our overall like? Yeah, what is your overall for four past midnight? Man, I you know before we get to these last two stories, it would probably be like a two for me just yeah. because I'm really not into those first two. And it, it does get redeemed a little bit and I did read it in order. So it had a, a nice slight upward arc. So I, I would go three stars, I think for four past, for four past midnight. I'm Man, sorry. Like, I'm sorry. Stars? stars. I was like, stars. Oh, God, <laughs> man. Pause, stars. And, and, uh, <laughs> Bright red Pennywise stars. What, what would it be if, if it was, uh, I'm trying to think we had to take something from four past midnight. What would it be like? <laughs> A uh, bolo or like uh, yeah. <laughs> four four uh, four black and dusty uh, fuck tapes <laughs> or like uh, uh, licorice like licorice oh, ropes. <laughs> uh, yeah, same. I I although I would say I'd say probably. I'd give a four past midnight as a whole. And I think Jan, you and I are probably the most generous graders on this, on this podcast. I'd also, I'd probably give it about three bright red Pennywise cloud noses. Uh, Langoliers is, is to me a fascinating, um, a misfire for King and secret window is to me a huge low point. Uh, library policeman is an audacious, uh, kind of one of a kind story within the King Canon and Sundog is to me sort of a weird, um, God, it's like, it's like a detour within the castle rock, uh, mythology. And so like a B-side or something like, yeah, getting, it's like a B side. Yeah. Maybe yeah. he succeeded in the four past midnight concept then. Cause when you think about like late night, when you're up and you have your crazy ideas <laughs> and they're all over the place, which you would, the way you just described each book was like here and there. And so it kind of, I mean, I mean, if that's what he was going yeah. for. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're wrong there. And I think that when I look at his past novella collection, different seasons, those, I'd say at least three out of the four of them very much feel like fully realized mm-hmm. uh, uh, singular 
King like uh, stories. I'd say Breathing Method is the only one that kind of maybe doesn't feel of a piece. I mean, and of course I say that because when different seasons came out, King was known primarily as a horror author and the, that whole piece was kind of meant to show that he, uh, he could flex his talents beyond horror here. He, the whole point was for him to write, to show that he was still connected to horror because people were a little bit put off by um, Tommy knockers and uh, some of his other more recent releases. And this was supposed to be like, kind of like, Hey, look, like King can write these really great horror stories. But I would say that in a weird way, I feel like I've, I've always felt when I read these, it feels like his arm is being kind of bent, you know, like that he's kind of trying to, he's being forced into writing these stories and there is a lack of inspiration to them. That doesn't mean they're bad. It just doesn't mean that they, that they fully assert themselves as classics within the King canon. And so, yeah, I think that, um, I find it a curious collection. I find it an interesting collection and I think it's, it's necessary for people who want to be King completists or King purists. But at the same time, uh, this is definitely one of the more skippable, um, uh, I'd say, uh, uh, bits of output of King, especially at this time, because we're about to enter a very interesting period within King. We're we're about to go into Needful Things, which to me is top tier King. But then we're going to move into a lot of curious novels that I think are more cult King. I mean, when we talk about Rose Matter, when we talk about uh, Dolores Claiborne, um, uh, Gerald's Game, those kind of stories, they're they're of a piece together, but they are very very different than what King was uh, doing previously. So that's going to be an interesting place for the pod to go. But I think in, in advance of that, we're doing the Wastelands. Am I correct, Dan? We got Wastelands yeah, coming wastelands, up? It's, I think it's Wastelands, Needful Things, then getting to that stretch you just mentioned, which yeah. I, I mean, I'm kind of excited to get to those books, many of which I think are really good, but they Agreed. don't get talked about quite as much. Agreed, um, yeah. And then, and then a little bit after that, like in the I guess like his early two thousands, late nineties stuff, like from a Buick eight, there, there's, there's some really curious novels that I, I actually think don't get enough credit that I'm, I'm really stoked to. And, and also, you know, it's like when we did the shining and we did it, um, I love those episodes. And I think we had some great conversations, but it's always tough with those because you feel all this pressure of like, well, what do I say that hasn't been said already? Right. Books are. So I really like it when we get to these kind of, yeah, these more off the beaten path ones. So yeah. And true. it's, it's like, yeah, it's like, let's have the discussions that people haven't had before, because I feel like a lot of these have not had those discussions. And, um, yeah, so this was fun. And I feel like we've had that kind of opportunity with library policemen and Sundog, which aren't fully discussed King properties themselves. So we're in kind of an interesting place with King these days. And, uh, yeah, so this was Sundog, uh, stick around. Um, we'll be back soon next week with a new episode. And I would say start reading The Wastelands if you haven't already. It's a long book, so I hope you've started it. But that is uh, going to be our next book that we're going to discuss, the third Dark Tower book. It was the it's uh, one of my favorite Dark Tower books. I'm a huge Wastelands fan. Very yeah, much looking good. forward to that episode. And uh, yeah, so Aisha, thank you so much. Yeah. This was a blast. Dan, thank you so much. This was so Anytime. fun. Uh, and if you haven't yet, please follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We got fresh content and all of them leave us a review if you haven't yet we like those reviews we're still at 4.5 because people don't like that we talk about the money money <laughs> boston sometimes <laughs> that is my number one uh thing i love to bring up even though it was one comment but anyways well, um, look let, let's face it 
you got to talk about the boss. <laughs> Look, no. that's the impression I get, if I'm being honest. <laughs> so uh, the Rascal King is here to say uh, long days <laughs> and pleasant, and pleasant nights. nights. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next week. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. Consequence Podcast Network.